Well, good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's a joy to be here and to be given this privilege to uh, preach today. And uh, I was thinking about the snow, and, and uh, when we were kids, we, we had a, a run right by the farm there, and we used to call that, uh, that particular run Grease Lightning because it was so fast. And I don't really know if it was that fast, but... Uh, but anyways, I'm glad you made it, and God gave us a break in the weather, because I hear there's a little more coming, but God gave us a break where we could uh, come together and worship Him, and what a beautiful thing. And so, I was asked by pastor uh, to pick something out of Ephesians to preach on, and it's, there were six chapters, I read them over, and I kept asking the Lord, praying, you know, direct me to something to preach, and, and I felt that it was good to preach these verses and it's about unity in the body of, of Christ. And so I think that it's important for us. I think we have unity and we're, we're doing well as a church, but I think it's good to keep that in the forefront of having unity and, and what does it take to have unity in the body. And so originally I was kind of uh, drawn to these verses of Ephesians 4.4 4 that... Uh, talks about one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. There's actually seven ones that are listed there, and I was drawn to that, but the three verses previously have to be preached, I think, first, and so maybe someday pastor will preach on the verse that I just quoted you, but I felt these three verses before. And, and part of the concern is in the community right now, there's three churches that are struggling uh, Bible-believing churches that have been solid for many years, and they're struggling. And so I think we should never think that we're all oh, we're above that or that won't happen here. And so I think it's an important subject. And I remember getting together with somebody who wasn't a member here yet, and he was concerned about the leadership and of the church and, and because he had you know seen probably in his past some struggles. And, and so I think that this is also something that came to my mind that, it would be good to, uh, to talk about what it takes to have unity in the body. And so let's bow our heads before we open God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, truly our confidence is not in ourselves, but it's in your word and in you. And so we, when we open your word, we have confidence that these are your words to us. And they will help us, Lord, in, in this area of unity in the body. So I pray, Lord, for uh, your Holy Spirit to uh, work through me and to deliver this truth to your people. And I pray that each person would uh, uh, just apply this in their hearts as you would have uh, planned today. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And I should say from the outset that it, even though this is for the church, I believe this is also something very beneficial to marriages. And so and it's mainly to Christians, but so I think, and, and even in, uh, like I have an extended family, we work together, and, and sometimes, as you know, with family, there's challenges, and the, but by God's grace, we're all believers, and so we need to work together and, and work these things through as a family. So as you listen today, Think of the importance of unity in the body so that because the call is not going to be just for leaders. That's the thing. And, and there's many different leaders besides uh, the elders and the pastor. But the call is for each of us 
to uh, take these words and to help in unity in the body. And so I've, uh, first I forgot my clicker, so I had to go back and grab my clicker, but I got my clicker, and I'm going to do it a little different this time. I'm going to just leave the verse up there, and if you have it in your Bibles, you'll have it. And I'm going to um, um, be quoting some verses, but I'm not going to try to do everything on the overhead. I'm, it's kind of like uh, chewing gum and walking at the same time. I don't know if I, if I did so great uh, with that last time. So I'm still learning and trying to find my way. But these are, this is the first verse, so I'll read that. And then what I plan to do, and, and you can look on the back of your bulletins. You could take notes there, but that's generally where we're heading. And, but, I, but I find it helpful for me to just take uh, portions of each verse and talk about that, and that's how I hope to uh, teach that this morning. So uh, Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so uh, the first uh, section of our verse we see, he says, I therefore. And I was told almost jokingly that somebody said, well, if you see a therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? And so we look at the first three chapters of Ephesians as laying out this doctrine or teaching, okay? And it's spectacular in scope, and I have a few examples here. But whenever doctrine or teaching is proclaimed, there comes application. And so we always have to remember when it's, we see a therefore, it's because of what he said before. And this is critical for this message. And I just have three examples from the chapter 1 of Ephesians that I'm going to read to you as examples of teaching and doctrine. And this is all related to our identity in Christ. And this is a critical element for a, a body of believers, our identity in Christ. The first one I picked was Ephesians 1.4. It says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then I have another example of our identity in Christ in uh, chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And then one more in verse 11 of chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. How often have, did we read, in him, in him, right? So this is our identity in Christ as believers. And so I will move on to our text for today. And the first thing we read is it says, I therefore, uh, a prisoner for the Lord. So Paul, you know, he was a prisoner of the Romans, right? But he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of the Romans. He says, I'm a prisoner uh, for the Lord. And I think this is a... a we should all be able to say that in a sense too, right? That we are prisoners for the Lord. And when I think of that, I think of, um, of Jesus is our master, right? Sometimes we use the term slave, which has some connotations from our past history in this country and other countries. But you think about, if I think of my own life, uh, when John was running John's life, I got into a lot of trouble. And But when I have Jesus as my master. I would gladly be his slave rather than be uh, a slave to my own selfishness and my own uh, desires. And so all of us hopefully as Christians can say, Jesus, you are my master. 
And we remember that Jesus bought us, right, with his precious blood. And so we belong to him. And we trust in him. And the next part of our text is he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so this this urging, think of how strong this is for the church. This is a call to us uh, by God through Paul. Uh, urging, and another word you could say is entreat, or even uh, to beg or to plead. That's how important these uh, words or these verses are for us today, is that he's pleading with us to follow these words in our lives. And uh, then we look at, in our verse, uh, the word walk, and whenever, quite often when we see the word walk in Scripture, it's talking about our daily conduct. So when he talks to you to walk, when he says to walk in a manner, it's talking about our daily conduct. And so these verses that we're looking at today is talking about uh, living out in our daily conduct what he has laid out for us. And then he says, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so um, the calling, I'm, this is assuming, see, that we're all believers, right? Paul speaking about that call when you heard uh, that call from Jesus. Uh, I think with that call, we, we recognize we're sinners, right? We realize that, that uh, we need a Savior, right? Sometimes I think of it as just saying, help. We recognize we're under judgment. And so I'm assuming that all of us have received that call and have made uh, Jesus uh, your Lord and Savior. But if you haven't made that call yet, That's something to consider, and I'd be happy to uh, talk with someone after the service if they would be ready to to make that call and to to make Jesus their master. And so we, um, I wrote down here, uh, we come to now to the practical requirements, not just suggestions for us as Christians. Principles to guide in every situation, as I've shared not only in the church, but also in family and uh, with workers. And I was struck by, um, was talking to my brother the other day about, you know, sometimes we, even though it's for primarily for Christians, sometimes we think uh, we treat other people differently. Like uh, I remember an expression, well, so, this is just business, right? When we deal with this guy, well, he's, you know, he's coming fixing something and it's business. That doesn't mean we treat them differently than we would our brother and sister. And so I think it's just a reminder that we need to treat people, uh, as we'll see in these words, not just those who are Christians, but, but really indeed everybody. And so we um, are going to go on to verse 2. And this part is the, there's four um, requirements you could say that uh, for us as believers to live these out and uh, this will benefit greatly for the church and and for our marriages and and our relationships so the first uh, I'll read uh, it says with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love humility is a compound word that literally means to think or judge with lowliness to have lowliness of mind. And when I first read that uh, definition, I thought, I used to think of humility was kind of this two aspects. One 
is our relationship with God, but also our fellow man. But I always thought of every, we're kind of on the same plane, we're all level. But this actually would say that we should look at ourselves as less than others, which is quite remarkable when you think about that. And I, I have Psalm 138.6 that says, For though the Lord is on high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. And so I put a definition. Humility is when we esteem ourselves less than others. And when I studied this, I came across this interesting uh, observation by John Wesley. And he, at that time, in the Greek and Roman language, there was no word for humility. And can you imagine, we just kind of take that for granted because we've heard that word many times. But there was no word. And so they think that Paul, or the Christians at that time, actually came up with the Greek word that we get our word humility from. And, and so, you know, when the, in the Greeks and the, in the Romans' minds, pride and self-satisfaction, that's kind of what you should have. See, in there, And they thought that humility meant cowardly or ignoble. You know, these were kind of like a derogatory type of term. And and indeed, in the first several centuries of uh, Christianity, whenever that term was used, humility, it was used usually of Christians, and it was used derogatorily. Like, oh, they have humility. Like, that's, that's a bad thing. And so it's interesting as we study these words, and, and this is not easy for us as Christians to embrace this idea of humility. The world exalts pride, not humility. Throughout history, fallen human nature ruled by Satan, the prince of this world, has shunned humility and advocated pride. Since pride is the opposite of humility, let's first look at what God says about pride. The first sin of, uh, was pride, and every sin after has been in some way an extension of pride. The original sin of Adam and Eve was pride, trusting in their own understanding above God's. We read in Genesis 3, 6 and 7. Pride is a supreme temptation from Satan because pride is at the heart of his own evil nature. Consequently, Satan makes sure that the Christian is never entirely free from the temptation of pride. And I was thinking, I shared, sometimes when I'm studying something and I, we had our worship practice, and so I shared at worship practice just a few thoughts, you know, uh, just because uh, we always have our little devotional time. And, and I was almost a little hesitant to share this because I didn't want people to think less of me, but um, I used my example of preaching. And so I pray and I ask many people to pray for me, right? And so after I preach, sometimes there, there's just that human nature that says, I preached this morning, <laughs> you know, and so, but think of the, the idea is that the glory is God's and, and the light should always be shining on him. And I almost kind of was a little embarrassed to share that, but I was thankful that one gentleman stepped up and said that he struggled with pride too. And I thought, well, good, I'm not the only one. And then afterwards, uh, somebody told me that they had prayed, uh, you know, during the day for help at work and they had a challenging situation at work and they prayed and and then afterwards everything went well at work but they didn't right away give god the glory and praise but they were kind of pleased that they 
did it, so to speak. And so you see how sneaky pride is. And so I think that this is, I feel, is something that we all have to be on our guard against. And I think that when we talked earlier about Satan, we don't want to always blame Satan for everything. I think our sinful nature, we know that as Christians we have a sinful nature, right? We sometimes refer to that as the old man. And so that old man is there. And so we don't just look for Satan out there. We look inside and try to honestly look at ourselves and and say, is there pride in my life that I need to deal with? And I think one of the things, because I've been looking at this for a month, because it's a challenge for me to preach, just over the course of that month, I I was uh, astounded by how sneaky pride is. And and you, you... can't really see it it's that sneaky and so I think sometimes our people that love us close to us can help us point it out and I think that's good and I think that we need to ask God for help because it is that sneaky and hard to identify our pride we will always be in a battle with pride until the Lord takes us to be with himself our only protection against pride and our only source of humility is a proper view of God Pride is the sin of competing with God. And humility is the virtue of submitting to His supreme glory. I have three verses about uh, pride. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16, verse 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Humility is an ingredient of all spiritual blessing. Just as every sin has its root in pride, every virtue has its root in humility. Humility allows us to see ourselves as we are because it shows us before God and His standard. Just as pride is behind every conflict we have with other people and every problem of fellowship we have with the Lord, so humility is behind every harmonious human relationship, every spiritual success, and every moment of joyous fellowship with the Lord. And I, I, in studying this, I came across this also, and was interesting, the Gospel writers, when they wrote the Gospels, you know, they were in the Gospels, right? And so they were, think about what a, how they could have uh, shown a little light on themselves, right? Made themselves look good. And an example of how they didn't do that was Matthew. He refers to himself as the tax collector. Remember that tax collector, they were the despised, the worst, right? And, and many times in Matthew, you'll re- see him referring to himself as a tax collector. But yet the other Gospels don't do that. And so they don't refer to him over and over again as the tax collector. And so it's just interesting to see that these Gospel writers were very careful that all the glory and all the light shone on Jesus Christ. And another example is um, with, um, oh, with Matthew was one other example was, you know, remember he had that big feast for his fellow tax collectors, right? And, um, and so, but he, we, don't, we read that in the other Gospels. He didn't say that, right? He threw this huge feast for, his, for other tax collectors. And so, I think about just even in sharing our own testimonies, there's always that danger in our Christian walk. If God were to use you, for example, to 
to help someone come to know the Lord. Perhaps you would even lead them in the sinner's prayer. Uh, we just have to be careful when we say, yep, I led so-and-so to the Lord, making it sound like somehow I did it, really. But we have to always remember that we're only a channel, right? And God can use us, but we just have to be really careful when God uses us in his kingdom work. And uh, another example was uh, Mark, they said they uh, feel that there, this isn't for certain, but that he wrote under the tutelage of Peter, the book of Mark. Okay? But we, read, we don't read two of the most spectacular things that Peter did in the book of Mark. We read it in the other Gospels. And they think that's probably why, is because Peter didn't want that in there. He wanted the light to shine on Jesus. And one of them was Jesus, or, uh, Peter walking on water. And think about that if you had that in your testimony, right? You could say, I walked on water one time. And, uh, you know, my wife reminded me that, uh, of course, he was sinking, right, shortly thereafter. But uh, so he, was, he couldn't be too proud of that. But I think that that's just another example. But we don't read that in the book of Mark. And then another example was Peter's just spectacular confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? What a, what a pronouncement and a beautiful proclamation, right? But we don't read that in Mark. We read that in the other Gospels. And so those are some examples. And the last one I had was when in the, in the Gospel of John, he always would uh, refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Just a simple, uh, this is who I am, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so I'm going to uh, have three, uh, I'm going to have God awareness and... Um, Jesus' awareness, and then self-awareness. And I purposely start with God because it's our human nature. We want to look at ourselves first, right? But I think it's always good to start with uh, God awareness. And the absolute reality and majesty of God always needs to be up front because everything else come, should come after that. And so I wrote down just some bullet points here just for us to take a, a glimpse at, at, at God. Our glorious God who creates a good world. In Genesis 1.1 we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then at the final end of the creation account we read, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There is only one God. He is good and glorious, loving and holy. God made us in his image to worship him, be in a relationship with him and reflect his character. God made the world perfect, a paradise where we could enjoy God and his gifts. And the Westminster Catechism has this question, what is the chief end of man, right? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? So this is always should be in our focus. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about glorifying him, and yet we do uh, enjoy him. Forever, And I think it's in glorifying him. I read a book once by Piper that said he wanted to change this a little bit, glorify God by enjoying him forever. And it's an interesting little twist that that's part of how we glorify him, by enjoying all these gifts that he's given us. So the second awareness is Christ awareness. And we, we, we look at Jesus because he is our example. Jesus is the only standard by which righteousness can be judged. 
and by which pleasing God can be judged. Our goal should be no less than to walk in the same manner as he walked. We read that in 1 John 2.6. And I have a text here about Jesus. This is just captured so amazingly uh, what, how Jesus is our example. And so I want to read this together. You can follow along with me. And talking about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So think about this. There's God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit having perfect fellowship from eternity past, right? Forever. And now Jesus is willing to become one of us. And it's hard for us to think about this, but that, that is a huge step down, right? For him to, to take a human form. And, and look what it says. He became, he made himself nothing, right? And so when we talk about humility or, or judging ourselves less than others, if Jesus can make himself nothing, he took the form of a servant, right? This is... God Almighty stooping down and being a servant. And so I think this is just good for us to see our example and how this should call us to be willing uh, to be humble. And then lastly, I have humility also involves proper self-awareness. The virtue by which a man becomes conscious of his own unworthiness. It begins with an honest, unadorned, unretouched view of, it, of oneself. The first thing the honest person sees in himself is sin. And therefore, one of the surest marks of true humility is a daily confession of sin. I'm going to go back to our verse here. So, if we read in 1 John 1.8, uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, that's a verse just saying that when you evaluate yourself, if you don't find any sin, that's, you better keep looking because there's sin in all of us and we indeed have sin already today and, and it's a good for us to, to evaluate ourselves. And I had to ask myself, how often do I, how much time do I spend in confession of sin? And I need to do more of it. I need to take more time to, to look at myself honestly and Scripture helps with that, and being hearing the preaching of the Word helps with that. But I think it's something we can ask God to help us with, too. And I find it, when pastor has challenged uh, me personally, or I mean through his preaching, that it's good to name the sins, right? What's the, there's a quote that don't give fair names to foul sins, right? And so something about naming sin is, I think, helpful in confession because... We don't give it a fair name. We just call it what it is. And the beauty is, with our sin, we have the cross, right? So important part is not to make it seem less than or to ignore it, but to confess it, call it what it is, and then go to the cross. And by that, of course, we mean to go to Jesus, right? We, all our hope and trust is in Him to forgive us of our sin. And the beautiful promise that we have just in the next verse of 1 John, 
1.9 says that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's just uh, our study in our men's uh, night has been so helpful because I learned there that none of our sins are unaccounted for, okay? It's not like, well, God can just kind of sweep it under the rug. Or, but it's either accounted for through the cross or it will be punished someday in judgment in hell. And so every sin that we sin is accounted for either through the blood of Jesus as Christians or through judgment. And so when it says in this verse that he is just, right? He wouldn't be a just God if he just swept it under the rug, so to speak, and said, oh, I'll just give you grace and it doesn't matter. There's no accounting. But that's his justice, that there is an accounting, but it's through our Savior Jesus and so I want to uh, uh, re read this part. Every person comes before the Lord with nothing to commend him and everything to condemn him. But when we come with the spirit of the penitent tax collector saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, God will willingly and lovingly accept us. And so all that was on the word humility. The last three will go quicker and we'll, we're moving on to gentleness now. Some versions of the Bible uh, use the word meekness. And humility always produces gentleness. Gentleness refers to that which is mild-spirited and self-controlled, the opposite of vindictiveness and vengeance. And this verse of Titus 3.2 blew me away. It says, To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people think about that i use that analogy of having somebody do some work maybe dan i had dan come out do a plumbing job for me and and i'm mad because well the pipes broke and it's causing all kinds of work right but when dan comes i need to show perfect courtesy right think of that that it's always easy to do these things when everything's going smooth in life right but when we're when the challenges come whether it's in parenting or even and this is, is the setting is for the body, but you could see how this extends to all of our relationships, right? Showing perfect courtesy toward all people. So I want to move on to patience. And uh, so this is the third uh, characteristic that Christians' worthy walk is uh, to have patience, which is an outgrowth of humility and gentleness. Patience literally means long-tempered and is sometimes translated long-suffering. We're all familiar with the word short-tempered, right? But I thought, well, it's kind of a neat twist on that, right? Long-tempered. And most of us kind of err on the other side with short-tempered. But try to think of yourself as being long-tempered. A patient person endures negative circumstances and never gives in to them. A patient person is slow in avenging wrong or retaliating when hurt by another. A patient Christian accepts God's plan for everything without questioning or grumbling. He does not complain when his calling seems less glamorous than when someone else than someone else's or when the Lord sends him to a place that is dangerous and difficult. I thought an example of um, just how easy it is in the body to step on other people's toes. 
I remember, I think I was chatting with Ray, I remember for sure, a while ba- about this a while back, about the shutdown. You know, the government had a shutdown, right? And uh, I thought, well, maybe that's going to work. We're going to build that wall because we're going to force people's hand, right? And so I was kind of for that, and I think I expressed that to Ray. And then later, a couple weeks later, you know how it drug on for more than a month, right? And so we were in men's Bible study, and pastor was uh, praying for uh, Kevin, who's in our church. He works for the border. And so I thought, man, Kevin, you know, I just said, because I thought, well, you could live without a paycheck for a week, right? Or so, you know, in my mind, or two weeks. But when it drug on for a month, I thought, so I, I talked to Kevin in church, and I said, I just told him that I, because I thought, man, if he found out, I just so flippantly said, well, he could do without a paycheck. I thought, that's stepping on his toes. And so, but he was so gracious to me, and he was for a border wall too, by the way. Working, he works on the northern border. But, but anyways, but there's just an example of how easy it is that we could step on each other's toes. And so I think we, we need to be on guard uh, for that. The last uh, one we have is bearing with one another in love. And the Phillips translation says, and I found this to be helpful, generously making allowances for each other because you love each other. Think about that, right? Kevin made it a generous allowance for me. I mean, he could have said, you, you know, he could have, he could have just, you know, really let me have it, really. But he didn't, and I'm just, I was so thankful for that because I felt vulnerable in telling him that I had done that. And um, in 1 Peter 4, 8, we read, uh, it, it tells us that love covers a multitude of sins, right? And I read this in, in my studies. It throws a blanket over sins of others, not to justify or excuse them, but to keep the sins from becoming any more known than necessary, right? And so there are times when, when something has to be brought to the surface. I think of all the trouble the Catholic Church has with all these priests. You don't throw a blanket over that and ignore that, right? But there are times um, with, when our brother, you know, sins against me, you know, like Kevin, for example, he, he could expose me and tell you guys what a rotten guy John is, and you know what I mean? And, and I'm trying to give you examples, but... So I just think that, think about that. If somebody sins against you, just, you know, deal with it privately and, and put a blanket over it or cover it. Don't, don't expose it any more than necessary. And, and this is all in the context of unity, right? We want to have this unity in our body. And so this is why this is so important. In Proverbs 12, uh, 10, 12, it says, Hatred uh, stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Forbearing love takes abuse from others while continuing to love them. Forbearing love gives continuously and unconditionally. And so now we can come to our last verse. And this is, uh, as it reads here, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so the, the question for all of us as believers of a body is, is are we eager to maintain the unity. I think that's, that's an important thing. I think one of the other Bible translations had being diligent to preserve the unity. Think about how we have, in a sense, each believer has in their hands some of this uh, uh, protecting the unity of the church. 
and the importance of that. And so um, Paul is speaking of the inner. Uh, well, I'm going to move on here to the next part. Um, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So I want to talk a little bit of the unity of the Spirit. So Paul is speaking of the inner unity of the Spirit by which every true believer is bound to every other true believer. Spiritual unity is not and cannot be created by the church. It is already created by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 we read, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For it is one spirit, for in one spirit we have all uh, baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Believers do not create unity, but are to preserve the unity already established by the Holy Spirit. The church's responsibility through the lives of individual believers is to preserve the unity by faithfully walking in a manner worthy of God's calling with those four things we just went over. And so the last part of the message today is in, in the bond of peace. So we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I looked up in the dictionary uh, just a definition of bond, and it said something that binds, ties, or fastens together as a cord or band, uniting force or tie, a binding agreement. And I want to share this verse, uh, Philippians 2, verse 2. It says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And I want you to pull out your bulletins, if you, if you have it handy. Look on the front. I want us to read this statement on the front together. Because this is, this is, as a church, what we should bind us together. This statement that's at the bottom of our bulletin. And I think it would be good for all of us to memorize this. Because it's an important uh, thing that keeps us all focused uh, with the same purpose. It says, we are Christ-centered community committed to glorifying God, teaching His Word and ways, and promoting loving relationships as we make disciples of Jesus Christ. So we are, <clears throat> there is a unity of the Spirit, and this is where I'm going to say like small s, because this is more talking about having um, uh, a like-minded or being having similar views, or having a harmony of views, right? And this, this is what this should be helpful for us. That this is what our church is about, and so this should help us in our views to be on the same page. We often use that phrase in in uh, our culture, and so I think that it's good for us to look that over from time to time and just remind ourselves what we're about at Good Shepherd here, and. The last uh, point I have uh, about peace, a definition is a state of reconciliation and love. And therefore, it acts as a bond to unite believers in Christ. And so I thought about, you know, all of this works, uh, but it has to, this, this similar views, it doesn't work if we don't have 
this love for each other, right? And I liked when I studied this, it talked about uh, mutual affection, right? So sometimes love is a big word, and we love our pizza, and we love, you know, our wife, and I mean, there's sometimes we say love pretty flippantly, but think about mutual affection. And I thought of today, um, during the, the, just the greeting time, and Jesse let us go on, I think, for an extra minute. But I, I heard all the chatter and, and just the fellowship. And I think that's an example of love. And another example was Chris walked in this morning. You know, Chris is our grounds guy, and he's always right on top of things. And, and I just, it felt natural for me to give Chris just a, around the shoulder and say, you know, appreciate you. But I think that's just another example of showing uh, this mutual affection, right? And we see it in other ways, in hugs and kisses and different things, handshakes. I think all of these are part of that. But, but this statement here doesn't really work unless we have this mutual affection. And I think we're great at, at a church at this. So I never want to say, like, I, I just want to say, let's do more of it. And this is, this is, I think, one of the signatures of this church. I've been told as we interview people for membership that they feel love when they come in. And I think... What a, what a beautiful thing that that's, that's something that we want always for our body. To, uh, and, and sometimes I feel like I know some people better than others, so, but, but some of you know them. The ones I don't know, you probably know better. And so by extending this mutual affection, we will have a, a more united church. And that's my uh, message for today. And so I'd like to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just uh, we thank you for sending your Son Jesus to die on the cross to uh, take the punishment for our sins. And Lord, we know that this standard that we just looked at, man, it's, it's so uh, difficult and, and indeed we fail even as we looked at showing perfect courtesy to others, Lord. Uh, we fail at that in the church and outside the church and in our marriages and yet, Lord, uh, Thankfully, we have a place to run to. We run to the cross because we know there we can receive forgiveness. There we can, uh, in a sense, have a fresh start and a, and a clean slate. As we are forgiven, we again go out and strive to meet this standard. Lord, help us have unity in, in the body at Good Shepherd. I pray that there would be a lot of love, even this morning, as we... Uh, uh, go our separate ways. I pray there would be fellowship and mutual affection among us. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.